Hear God's word from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his This is God's word. This is the third in a four-part series called Christ Our Rest. And we have looked at the rest that God gives to particular people in the scriptures, especially over against the rest that some people thought they would have but didn't receive. We have already seen that God is faithful to give his rest to those who believe to those who have a tender heart, Uh, to those today who obey, and then next week to those who are faithful. And everywhere along the way, we have paused and reminded ourselves of the broader context of the book of Hebrews, which you'll remember was a book written to Hebrew Jewish Christians who were facing persecution and being tempted to go back into the Judaism that they had known before because it was more comfortable for them and less risk. Now, when I say we go back, we're really going back today. Under normal circumstances, I would not have with me quite as much material as I do this Sunday. But because of the nature of what we're studying and because of of, of how we really need to get our arms around most of the old covenant to understand it, we're going to be spending a little bit more time learning and studying different passages in the Bible than we might otherwise do. And not just to kind of reinforce everything with numerous cross-references, but, but rather to provide a broader perspective, really a biblical theology, understanding where all of this fits in with the, the great arc of redemptive history, the, the covenants of God from creation through the fall, through redemption and consummation. And we really can't understand all of that without going all the way back to the very beginning. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he did all of this in seven days. At the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the water and the light. And then on day two, he separated the waters and created an expanse in between and called it the sky. And then on day three, he formed the dry land, the seas, the plants, and the trees. Then day four came the sun, the moon, and the stars. By day five, he was ready to create the sea creatures and the birds, and then day six, the land animals and mankind. 
But what we often forget is that on the seventh day, he also created something, and that was rest. You see, before that time, you might say God was already at rest, and the answer would be not exactly. Because rest here is seen in distinction to work. And though God was perfectly satisfied in everything that he is, he created the earth in six days to manifest his great glory as the work of creation, and then on the seventh he rested to show that the work was finished, but the work was ongoing in a different way because he would now rule and reign as Lord over the universe. And so when we look at the seventh day and we look at rest, We look at something beautiful that God created for himself to enjoy and that he invites believers to join him in. It'll be glorious one day when we all get to experience the new heavens and the new earth and resurrected bodies. We can free ourselves from the notion that we're going to die and be disembodied and float around in some ethereal heaven forever and instead anchor our truth to the understanding of what is revealed in Scripture that it is going to be a glorious physical creation and recreation and you will be restored in your physical body and you're going to get to enjoy it forever. All the physical delights of this world are mere shadows of the delights that are to come. Whatever good you get to experience through your five senses in this fallen body will be amplified by many times over in the numerous senses you don't even know you could have yet in your new resurrected body where you get to enjoy it forever on the new earth in the new heavens with God's presence. And he says this ultimate rest, this glorious rest, This rest that involves the same kind of work that was given to Adam and Eve at the beginning before the fall, attending, a ruling over, a dominion over, a governing, is the rest into which you are invited. And I would argue this morning, if there was one statement we could make that would cover our view of this text in its entirety, it is this, that rest comes when you trust and obey God. Rest comes when you trust and obey God. And so that's the main theme that runs throughout the entire section. Now, to understand this, we're going to look at rest in in three different ways. So we're going to look at rest promised, and then the nature of rest, and an invitation to that rest. So the promise of rest, the nature of rest, and an invitation to that rest. First of all, the promise of rest. The rest here still stands, as we are told in verse 1, as an open promise, because ultimately it wasn't geographical. It was spiritual. Remember, the context here is that uh, the children of Israel were not able to enter the rest that God had promised them in the land because of their disbelief. There was a whole generation that wasn't able to go in. And the author is saying that the invitation for that rest still stands. There is still an open promise that you can enter it. And he says, therefore, based on everything in chapter 3, which was the warnings of what happens when you don't obey the Lord. And so he says, as a consequence of that, the offer of rest is a rest that won't mean that you live in peace just geographically, but rather that you live in peace with the living God who is the judge of the whole world. Now, notice here for a moment, he says that you are to fear. Fear. Now, we've got to connect the word fear with the word failed later on in this verse. In fact, in the original language, I I think the warning is even more striking. You would literally translate it this way. If you're just looking at it in the original, it would go like this. We should fear, therefore. Now, that's an interesting way to start 
a verse when you're talking to Christians. Because most of the time we are assured that fear should not be part of our daily experience. Why would the author then turn and say to all of these assembled believers, you should fear therefore? What are you fearing? The answer comes in the rest of this verse. Lest, lest, lest this happened, lest you do this, lest this consequence overtake you as has overtaken others, namely, lest any of you should seem, meaning the evidence of your life would suggest this, that you have failed to reach it. How does one fail to reach it? They fail to reach it by by falling away. They fail to reach it by not persevering. They fail to, to reach it by not believing, by not obeying, by not having a tender heart toward the Lord. And so, what would make the writer say this? Why, why would we fear such a thing? You might be asking yourself, well, wait a minute, I know the gospel already. Like, I know the gospel really well. I could give you the gospel right now. I know it. And the reality is knowing it is not enough. I think the entire point, the entire thrust of this passage is that the real rest into which you enter is a rest that is entered through genuine belief. And belief is very different than simple knowledge. Even though you could clearly articulate what it means to be converted, we are the ones that should be most confident that the Lord would accept us, and yet we are the ones who are called to fear. In fact, it is the overconfidence that I think so many of us have that is the reason for this invitation to fear. And so he describes it a little bit more in detail in verse 2. Look, he says the good news here, or the gospel, uh, this was the good news that came to us. The us here that he's referring to would have been those first century Christians. He, He says to these believers that are gathered together who are listening to the reading of this letter to the Hebrew Christians, uh, possibly in Rome, we're not exactly sure, but he says to these assembled believers, gathered much like we are today in, in one assembly as a church, he says this good news, this gospel has come to us. But he says, remember, it also came to them. Uh, it wasn't just you. In fact, this gospel has been proclaimed and and preached. This good news has been delivered to the people of God generation after generation after generation, some of whom believed it and others didn't. And so he says to them, it has come to us today in that time in the first century the way it did to them as well. And the good news was preached and God said he would make atonement for their sin. He would give them rest from their working. He would give them a day of rest every week as a reminder that they were ultimately going to find rest in him. And it was a gift. I love the fact that it's a gift. Um, There's a misconception, I think, that the Sabbath day was this really Um, sad day? Like all you did was sit around and contemplate your wretchedness? Now, now let me just like do a thought experiment with you. Uh, If you work really hard for six days, and then the seventh day is a day where you sit around in morbid introspection, depressed over your own wickedness, would that be something that you looked forward to? Probably not. You'd be like, I got to get past this day. I'm ready to go back to work. No, the Sabbath was, uh, on the contrary, I think a time of great joy for the people of Israel. Because in it, they were allowed to manifest their genuine freedom and liberty to not have to work. You see, the defining characteristic of a free person, especially one who had come out of slavery, was that you didn't have to work. 
Believe me, when they were in Egypt, they didn't get a day off. Uh, they weren't told that they had to work a certain number of hours, and if they extended beyond that, they'd get overtime. Uh, they weren't told that if they were sick, they could just stay at home. Uh, they were worked, and as we know from what archaeology has taught us, especially in Egypt, it was not uncommon to simply work your naked slaves to death, discard them, and fill them with more. It was not uncommon for them to be so utterly dehumanized that they had no name, no purpose, no being, no identity, no volition. They basically were subhuman. They were just machines that were used to accomplish these great works in Egypt. And so you had no rights, you had no liberty, you certainly had no rest. And so for God to impose upon them a day where they paused from all work, and they meditated on the goodness of God to give them that break. It would have been a day filled with great joy. It was a wonderful gift. They were given the good news of God's redeeming sacrifice and forgiveness. They were given the good news of the atonement. And they were told how to be made right with him. And so they heard this every seventh day. And, and yet what the author is saying is that they heard it and heard it and heard it. And many of them didn't believe it. Imagine if every day you were forced by civil law to stop working so that you could meditate on the goodness of God to give you rest, but you didn't believe it was real. And that's why the author says it didn't benefit them. It didn't save them. It didn't redeem them. It didn't give them rest. And so the promise still stands, but, but the promise doesn't guarantee you'll get it. The promise is held out there but it is not truly appreciated except by those who actually believe. And so, how do we know? It's explained by looking at the nature of rest. That's our next point. The nature of rest. What does it mean to truly embrace it? What does it mean to be united, literally blended by faith with those who have listened? He'll explain it to you now. The nature of rest, beginning in verse 3 and taking us down through verse 5. The special divine rest is a rest from incompleteness. It is a rest from the fight for satisfaction. It's a, it's a rest that God deprived the Jews from because they wouldn't believe him. He says that because of your unbelief, I am going to withhold my rest. I can't think of something worse than withholding rest. Imagine being cursed with perpetual work. Never break, never an end never rest. Utter futility. Never any sense of accomplishment. Never any sense of completion. It's very opposite of what God describes for us on the seventh day. You see, he rested because everything was complete. Everything was perfect. He was utterly satisfied with it. He looked down on it and he called it what? Very good. Imagine if you're deprived of ever looking at anything you have ever done and assigning goodness to it. Rest is a gift, but it's also a command and it applied here to all the people. The rest that they were to acknowledge on the Sabbath day was a universal rest. Listen carefully, beloved, because it's so important. It applied when the people were in the wilderness to both Jews and aliens. It applied to animals, both clean and unclean. It applied even to the land. In fact, the Jews suffered another exile later on for 70 years precisely because they refused to obey God and give the land its Sabbath. The people got a Sabbath, the aliens got a Sabbath, the animals got a Sabbath, both clean and unclean, and even the land got a Sabbath. You know what that is, right? It's the seven-year 
Sabbath, the one you take off. Let's sort of contextualize this for a moment. Imagine if we had been given a command by God to take every seventh year completely off. Is that a command you could obey? Maybe you're saying, yeah, I would love that. I would love a year off. What would that entail? It would probably entail six years of planning for it, wouldn't it? Most of us wouldn't be able to do so well if we had zero income for an entire year. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I'm guessing most of us would find that, that things might get a little tight. So there was a preparation that went on, but interestingly enough, the people of Israel aren't that much different than you and I. It sounds great to take a year off, but the idea of actually doing it takes a lot of faith. And from what we understand from the old covenant record is that they never actually did. They were instructed to do it, but they didn't. They didn't take that seventh year off. Now, as I told you earlier this morning, it's going to be a little bit different than a normal sermon. It's going to be maybe a bit of a theology study here this morning. But I want you to really look at this because, because you have to understand it in the context of the Old Covenant. So if you have your Bibles, look at Leviticus chapter 25. This is where it's laid out for them. Leviticus chapter 25. The Sabbath year beginning in verse 1 of Leviticus 25, and as you're, as you're finding your way there, let me just remind you, Leviticus was one of the five books of Moses, one of the five books that he wrote for the people. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we said how important Moses was? He was their primary historian. He was their, their primary intercessor between them and God. He was really their high priest, even more than Aaron was in terms of mediating for them between them and God. He was the one who was their hero, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He was the one who had this unique relationship with God. In fact, nobody more intimate with God since Adam. And he wrote these five books. They're called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Genesis is really the history, creation, and then the fall, and then the flood, and then the nations, and then the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And that takes you all the way to the point where there's this 400-year enslavement in Egypt. And then you get to Exodus, which is the story of them being taken out of Egypt. And where God gives them his law. And then Leviticus is kind of the civil code. How are you supposed to function in this new society, this new theocracy? Numbers gives them a history of their own people and all of the numbers of the tribes of the patriarchs, reminds them of God's faithfulness to take them from 70 people into this nation of millions. And then Deuteronomy, the second law, Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law. Moses has already disqualified himself from going into the promised land, but he goes up and he reminds the people once again of God's law to them. And they all swear allegiance that they're going to follow God this time because they learned after 40 years of wandering around, but as history tells us, they didn't. And then you get into Joshua and Judges and so forth, into Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, the story of the kings that rose up and then the nation divides and is taken into captivity again. Why are they taken into captivity? Because they failed to obey what's in Leviticus 25. Look at it. I hope you're there by now. That was a long opportunity for you to find Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, I give you the land shall keep a Sabbath to Yahweh. The land will keep a Sabbath. How does the land keep a Sabbath? How does the land not work? Well, the land doesn't not work. The land is not worked by you. That's how it gets a Sabbath. 
For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. All you were allowed to do was eat what was left over from the previous years. And God said, don't worry, because if you are faithful to do this, I will give you a bumper crop leading up to it. If you are faithful, I will provide for you. And as Dave was reminding us earlier this morning, time and again what the people did was they were shown this wonderful miracle of God's provision. Then they were given the written law of God to explain it. And then they were invited to obey. And then they looked back to God and said, I see what you've done. I hear what you've said, but I don't believe you. And God, in his righteous wrath, responds to that disbelief with judgment. Now, I might add that not only was there this Sabbath year, but there was even a year of jubilee. This was the time when everybody was to actually return to everybody else, whatever had been acquired over this 50-year period. Everything went back to its original owner. What it did was that it prevented any one person within that society from becoming disproportionately wealthy. It kept one tribe from becoming greater than the others. It was this mass redistribution and return of wealth. And it was incorporated right into the very civil code of Jewish society. But all of this was ignored. All of this was rejected. All of this was disbelieved. And so as a result, God says, you are going to go into captivity. There is one bright spot. If you look at your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings 23. Let me give you this. 2 Kings 23. It's right in the middle of the history books. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Uh, these three books were just Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles originally, but because the scrolls were so long, they had to divide them into two, and that's how you get first and second. Um, it's not like it was just a really, you know, good seller, and so they come up with a sequel or something. It's just a long book. But in this particular case, 2 Kings chapter 23, there is a bright spot. One of the kings, King Josiah, came to the throne. And in verse 21 of chapter 23, we read this. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to Yahweh your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Just pause there for a moment. You see, up until that point, the people had not been celebrating Passover you think, how is that possible? Passover was like your main celebration. That would be like if your grandkids just stopped celebrating Christmas. And all of a sudden, they were going through the attic and they discovered these old things called Christmas cards. And they were like, what's this all about? I get presents every year? We're going to start this up again. Now, in a much more serious way, what happened was the law had been lost. The Torah, the books of Moses... And so they were rediscovered under Josiah's reign. And Josiah says, bring me them. And he reads them and he says, we need to obey what is written in God's law. And so the Passover was reinstituted. But interestingly enough, we don't really have record of the Sabbath year being reinstituted. 
We don't have any record of the year of Jubilee being instituted. No, as a matter of fact, the people continue to reject this all the way into the time of David as he's writing the psalm that talks about how the people in the wilderness didn't obey God. He is the chief administrator of a sovereign nation, a theocracy that itself was not obeying God at the very zenith of its power. You see, the the hardness in the heart of man was perpetual generation after generation. Josiah continues here in verse 22, For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to Yahweh in Jerusalem. Little glimpses of faithfulness. You can turn back to Hebrews now. You know, the author here in this section that we're talking about in the nature of this rest quotes Psalm 95, and he quotes it multiple times. And and what I'd like to to suggest to you today here is that as you read this section, it might be a little bit confusing the the way it's laid out. It's, It's hard to read even. And so what he does is he sort of bookends the warning that they would not enter the rest in verse and then he says it again in verse 5. And in the middle, he talks about the rest they wouldn't have. So he says, you're not going to have it. This is what it is, and you're not going to have it. So talking to those who had, had, had rejected him, rejected this rest, he says, you're not going to have it. This is what it is, and you're not going to have it. The people then didn't believe, and as a result, they wouldn't rest. And so the worst punishment was the lack of rest. It was work, but no completion. It was wandering, but no destination. It was planning, but no peace. And so those then who believe, both then and now, have entered the Sabbath rest that God himself created. He created it. He established it. He's enjoying it right now, and he invites you into it. The rest that he took on the seventh day, the the rest that belongs to him, In in the middle section there in in verse 4 where the author says, it is written somewhere, he is quoting Genesis 2-2 when it says that God ceased from his work. Now just a a quick thought on this. Why would he say it is written somewhere? Again, just a little, little history here. The Bible, when it was originally written as these individual books and letters and prophecies and sermons, um, as it was compiled, it wasn't compiled with chapters and verse numbers. So when you were an expert in the law, you were an expert in the book that was written by Moses that had no chapter breaks, no verse distinctions. You just had to know the content of that writing. And so when the author says it says somewhere, it's not like he couldn't remember. It's not like he he said, well, you know, I know I memorized that verse at one point. Man, I'm always good at remembering the verses, but just not the reference. You ever had that problem? Here's the thing, Uh, you know, when you focus just on memorizing Bible verses, decoupled from their context, you run a very high risk of misunderstanding and therefore misapplying them and therefore actually doing yourself more harm than good because you've got these little verses that you've had to memorize over the years because you've been in programs or something that has trained you this way and yet you don't understand the context of them. And as a result, you actually have a misunderstanding of Scripture. The greatest example of that possibly is in the next part of chapter 4 where we talk about the Word of God being a sharp sword and it's sort of 
memorize just that one verse without the context of what's being said. And if you understood the context, that idea of God's word being a sword is utterly terrifying. But we'll get to that next week. So come back, because you'll want to understand that. But here, he says, somewhere, because there wasn't a way for him to go, as you know, back in Genesis 2-2, God said this. He is looking back to that book of Moses and quoting it. Now, this is fascinating. It proves that this rest that we're talking about is not the consequence of fatigue. Note that. What is the rest that I'm trying to enter? What is the nature of this rest? The nature of this rest is not a rest because I'm tired. It's not a rest because I'm fatigued, because God doesn't get tired. The rest instead, please note it, is a rest that is a consequence of satisfaction. It's a consequence of satisfaction. How many things have you done in life and then looked at it and said, I am utterly and completely and totally satisfied? How many things have you built? How many things have you fixed? How much work have you done? How many things have you written? How many, um, how many children have you raised? And you look at that and you say, I am absolutely satisfied with how I did that. Is there a single day where you could lay down at night and say, Father, thank you for this day because I am utterly and completely satisfied with everything that I did? If you do think that way, you've got problems. <laughs> you have a very high view of yourself. The reality is none of us do. I mean, not, nothing we do is perfect. Not, nothing we do can we be utterly satisfied with. God himself creates the world, and in six days, he looks at it, and on the seventh day, creates something that is the embodiment of his absolute perfect satisfaction in everything that he's done. What an incredible rest to invite you into. You can join me in that, he says. The rest that comes not from being tired, but the rest from saying, yes. It's like an exhale that goes, ah, it's perfect. This rest that he experiences every single moment. Now remember, this is a rest that is not a ceasing from action. I know that because over in the Gospel of John, we have this fascinating exchange when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees about working on the Sabbath. And you don't need to, to turn to this one. I'll just read it for you. But it's in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, Jesus has one of his famous confrontations with the Pharisees. It happens all the time. And he is healing a man by the pool on the Sabbath. And he says that Jesus, in verse 17, answers them, talking about the work that he is doing on the Sabbath. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. What does he mean? You say, how does that, how does that work with Genesis 2-2? I thought he didn't work anymore. No, no, no. What he says is the work of creation was done. He's utterly satisfied. And now the work that he does is a work of ruling, a work of presiding over, a work of delighting in, a work of enjoying. Not only did he create it, but now he enjoys it. The work he has is a work of maintaining it, sustaining it, and ultimately glorifying it. And when Jesus said, I do the same thing, they indicted him on blasphemy charges. In fact, the next verse says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why were they so obsessed about the Sabbath? They were obsessed about the Sabbath because after 70 years in captivity, 
Because God said, you didn't keep the Sabbath year for 70 times, 490 years, you didn't keep it. Therefore, I'm going to get all my Sabbaths back, and I'm going to remove you from the land so the land can rest. They come back after 70 years, and they said, far be it from us to make that mistake again. And the Sabbath day became this obsession for them. Ironically, not the Sabbath year. But what it also did was it opened up an opportunity for the religious people to create so many laws, so many rules, so many external restrictions that the people were absolutely crushed and burdened by the Sabbath. And I think this is where the misunderstanding of Sabbath comes in. Sabbath, as it was originally intended, was a good thing. Sabbath in the hands of religious people is a burden. When you put law in the hands of self-righteous religious people, they will create all sorts of obstacles and obligations that will make your life utterly miserable. And we see this time and again as Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees with their version of God's law, and he repeatedly and continually breaks it. And as we'll see at the end of the sermon, he does so because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He rules it. He reigns over it. And so what we get to enjoy today is an understanding of Sabbath from his perspective, which means it is not a burden. It is a rest that we enjoy as we contemplate the rest he has given us in Christ, the rest from our works that could never redeem us anyway. And so, as he rests by ruling, he now oversees, manages, rules creation in perfect sovereign satisfaction. This is so wonderful. And so what does this mean for us? What do I rest from? Well, I rest from work, yes, but more than that, I rest from works. The greatest rest that you are going to be able to enjoy is a rest not only from work, but a rest from works. A rest from trying to justify yourself through the burden of the law. The rest of God is a rest from restlessness. The deep rest is that which you have from knowing you're found in him complete. That the rest you have is a rest that comes from God and a rest that is in God. As Augustine so famously put it in his confessions at the very beginning, he says this to God, you have prompted him, speaking of mankind, that he should delight to praise you, for you have made us for yourself, and restless is our heart until it comes to find rest in you. You see, all the work you do is a shadow of an everlasting enslavement to expectations of a world that cannot find God in their idols unless it is shattered and broken down by a rest that is offered to you free of charge by grace through faith alone in Christ's finished work. He did the work for you. He built it for you. He designed it for you. He completed it for you. The satisfaction you take is never going to be in, in what you've done. It's the satisfaction you take in the work that he has done. So you can go there and look at it and say, I am so satisfied in what you have done. It's the feeling you get when you've tried it yourself and then you call on the professional for help. Now, this might not relate to all of you, but it can relate to some of you, especially if you're a homeowner, especially if you're one of those do-it-yourselfers or as I like to call us, try-it-yourselfers. 
And I have a dear friend, brother in Christ, who's in this congregation right now, and I won't name him in order not to embarrass him, but on more than one occasion, he has come to my house in order to help me complete something that I thought I could do by myself. And he's very kind, but he comes over and basically can barely resist the urge to sort of shake his head and say, my goodness, why in the world did you try to do this on your own? And yet when it is done by someone who knows what they're doing, you step back and it's like satisfying. Now imagine if my wife were to come in and observe this work and I were to step back and I were to present it to her and say, what do you think? And she goes, that's amazing. And I say, I know, I'm pretty good, aren't I? You didn't think I could do it. What would that be? Be robbing this other person of the glory. It's the exact same thing that the author is saying here. Don't rob God of the glory of completing everything he expects in the law. You're never going to do that. Instead, look to him, celebrate him, rejoice in him, say, you've already done it. I rest in the work you have done. It's the ultimate rest. And so, every work we do, every effort we make is a shadow and a reminder of the finished work. So the author then is helping the New Covenant Christian community to understand their own Old Testament, what it all pointed to. And the Torah, these very books of Moses, go on to explain the unexplainable. Everything that is promised there, everything that is foreshadowed, finds its completion in Christ. And so, thirdly, the invitation to rest. So we've seen the promise of rest, the nature of that rest. Here's the invitation to rest. We see that in verses 6 through 10. Once again, he talks about the good news, the, the good news that is the promise and the invitation to rest. You say, when was that held out before? Well, if you go back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, we'll look at the place where the people rejected it. Numbers chapter 14. As you find your way there, let me begin reading a section so that you can get the context. Numbers chapter 14, right at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then Numbers. Beginning in chapter 14, we read, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness, why is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, they use his name? Why is he bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The context here is that the spies had come back from the land and they had said, they're giants. But God's bigger than the giants. We believe that God has called us to take this land and he'll empower us to do so. It's true that it'll be difficult in the sense that they are bigger than us and it's intimidating and it's terrifying, but we're going to put our trust in God. We're going to go into the land and we're going to believe him. And only Caleb and Joshua came back with that report. Remember, the other spies said, no, it's too much. We can't do it. The other spies, the other people sent into the land to bring back a report were a toxic influence in the assembly and they turned the people's hearts. Let's just say that there were on a conservative estimate two million people in the wilderness. It only took 10 to turn the two million. You think that division and strife 
can't spread through an assembly because of the mouthpiece of just one or two evil people? No, it can. That's why gossip and slander and malcontent and grumbling and complaining is such a horrible sin. It can actually turn the hearts of people. It can destroy the sweet unity that God gives in a church or in an assembly of Jews in the wilderness. And so what's happening here is that the people's hearts are being turned. And so they decide that it's all going to be blamed on Moses. He's the problem. He brought them out here in the first place. And Aaron, who was like his henchman. And God, who promised him something but didn't deliver. And God, in his perfect anger, responds over here in verse 20 of the same chapter. Then Yahweh said... No, I'm sorry. Back in um, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. That's his response. Now Moses, as we know from the rest of the story, intercedes for the people. God doesn't destroy them all, but he does say this entire disbelieving generation will never enter the land. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is referencing. Back to Hebrews 4. So with that context, he says then that God, the Holy Spirit, inspires David in Psalm 95, about 400 years later, to repeat the invitation to believe. And this time he says, do not harden your hearts. Verse 7, again, he, the Holy Spirit, the one referenced earlier in chapter 3, he says, today. And in that case, he was saying through David, today, to the Jews who were living in David's day, and the, Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews picks that up and says, today in our day. And the preacher today says to you today. Get the idea? Today, says Moses. Today, says David. Today, says the writer of the Hebrews. Today, says me. Today is the day when you do not harden your hearts and instead believe. Why? Because there's a great promise that could be passed up. Why would David invite them into God's rest if they had already had it in the land already? Think about this contextually for a moment. Follow the argument here in the text. He says, after Moses came Joshua... He believed, and therefore he was able to enter the land, and he led that next generation, but even they didn't find rest. If just being in the land was enough to get rest, then Joshua should have been able to help the people find it. If being in the land for some time would give you rest, then David would have helped the people find it. If being in the land and having no visible enemies and lots of prosperity and gold and silver and food, then Solomon would have been able to say to the people they found it. But none of them did. Here's the point. It wasn't really ultimately about the land. The land was a picture of something that was ultimate. And the ultimate rest is the rest that is found in the finished work of Christ. That's what our eye goes to. That's where it's ultimately found. They weren't able to get it from Moses or Joshua or David or Solomon or anybody else for that matter. They could only find it in Christ. Now, they did receive the law again in Deuteronomy. But eventually they failed to keep it as well. And the next generation turned out to be just as bad as the one who had disbelieved God in the wilderness. So then the writer finally says this. There needs to be another day later on 
Even after Joshua brought them into the land, it didn't bring ultimate rest. It gave them partial rest, but it still involved a lot of war and hard hearts and disobedience. So he says, you've got to look forward to another day. Brothers and sisters, what's the day? What is the day that we're looking forward to? There are two answers to that question. The first answer is that there is a day right now that you look forward to, the day you do put your faith in Christ, the day you believe. Now, I want to I anticipate a question. What does it mean to believe? Because some of you might be thinking to yourself, that's fine, I get it. It says believe, but what do I have to do? Like, what are the steps? Do I have to, like, pray the prayer, walk the aisle, sign a card, throw a stick in the fire at the campsite? Like, what do I do to prove it? That's a good question. And, and if we're not careful, then we can end up falling into a, a, a trend, a pattern, which was pretty popular in kind of post-World War II Western American conservative evangelicalism, which is to sort of have a decisional regeneration. You make this decision, you do this thing, you pray this prayer. And what it does is it, it, it inadvertently, and perhaps unintentionally, separates the act of faith from the actual belief that is modeled at conversion. How is belief exercised here? How is real belief shown? Is it by a series of standards that you must live up to afterwards? You see, the answer here is that real belief is shown in your willingness to trust God and to obey Him to trust him and obey him. Remember the famous old song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey? You might say, ah, oh, it sounds like kind of a, a, a goofy tune. Yeah, but it sticks in your head and you remember it, doesn't it? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. What does trusting and obeying mean? Trusting is putting your, your full confidence in him, and obeying him is not obeying him in order to earn his favor, but obeying him out of joy and a willingness and a desire that is given to you that wasn't there before. It's not a threatening kind of thing. It's a joyful thing. So the first answer is you trust and obey. The second answer is that there is a great day that will come when he returns to set his people free from the imprisonment of this flesh. When you are changed, when you meet him in the air and you are changed, the dead in Christ rise first according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And everyone who remains is changed. And there is a great judgment, a great sorting out. And there is resurrection bodies given to those who are in Christ so they can enjoy the new heavens and the new earth forever with him. And there are resurrection bodies, believe it or not, given to those who are not in Christ, fashioned that they might be punished in hell forever. And so the great day of rest that we look forward to is prefigured in your conversion when you trust and obey him. And then it is ultimately realized in the consummation of all things when he comes back for his own. Now, that's the reward to look forward to. It's a rest from your works, not a rest from activities. It's a rest from self-justification and a rest from trying to cover yourselves. I said we go all the way back to the beginning, and we did, and we find ourselves back there again. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, what they did was they began hiding themselves. They began working, not to work the land and show dominion over it together as equal partners, but instead they went around sowing fig leaves to cover themselves and hiding from God. You realize it's a lot of work to hide from God? He's always there. 
nothing you do, no matter how far you get, no matter how much you're hidden, you think you're not, you know, he can't see you, you know in your heart that he can. And it's that relentlessness inside of us that is constantly striving. As we said a few weeks ago, from one of those Puritans, it's either lust or law. You, you sort of dull your sense of that impending judgment by satisfying your lusts and trying to find rest there, or by following your own law and finding rest there. And neither of them bring the satisfaction you desire. Instead, understand the Sabbath rest is described to you here. There are four implications that I was able to come up with just as I meditated on this. Number one, just as we close, number one, Sabbath is not a reward but a gift. Um, I, know, I know it's difficult sometimes for us. We, we think that Sabbath rest is something that we have to earn. If I work hard enough during the week, then I will earn the day off. But the reality is that there was no precondition put on Sabbath. God didn't say that if uh, you were a farmer, let's say, as long as you brought in enough crop, then you could have a Sabbath day rest. He didn't say if you were a student, as long as you finished your homework, you can have a Sabbath day rest. He said that the Sabbath was to be exercised and enjoyed by everybody no matter what. So when the sun went down Friday night until the sun goes down Saturday night, you're not allowed by divine law to do anything, and it was not a consequence of how well you had done that week. And yet, if, if you're like me, you, you import into today's understanding of rest the sense that it's earned. I'll take a break, I'll take a rest, I'll take a day off so long as I get my work done. And the reason why we cannot rest so often is that today, especially, we feel like if we're resting, someone else is getting ahead of us. Or if we're resting, something's not getting done. Or if we're resting, somehow we are not going to be able to produce or perform at the level we want to. Can I encourage you this morning, just like pastorally, to work rest into the regular rhythms of your life? And I guess because it's been on my mind lately, I, that applies to everybody. You know, that, that applies to, to no matter where you're at or what stage of life you're in. If you just work yourself continually all of the time, not only are you going to ultimately be unproductive, you're, you're also going to be pretty miserable. It's for the sake of your own joy. Secondly, Sabbath is not rest as an option, but rest as a command. Do you realize you could sin by not resting? When you cannot rest in the finished work of Christ, you are going to ultimately sin by thinking that you are responsible for your own righteousness. And it will lead to all manner of confusion, it'll lead to all manner of attempts that are not godly at earning his favor. Number three, Sabbath is not a lack of good works, just works that make you good. It doesn't mean you stop doing good works. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says you are created to do good works. <laughs> you should want to do good works. This is not some license to go and sin. It doesn't say you shouldn't care, but it says that when you do the good works, you do good works, not in order to earn his favor, not to make you good, but you do them out of joy. And then finally, Sabbath is not a return to idleness, but a creation of God on the seventh day. It's not a return to idleness. It's not a lack of work, but it is an entering into the rest he created on the seventh day, a rest of resting in his supreme triumph over everything and the satisfaction that we get to take for his work. Remind yourself of it, rejoice in it, be refreshed by it. In Mark 2, 23 to 28, we have this wonderful story of Jesus who 
exercises this Sabbath dominion. Mark says one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the name of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. May God add his rich blessing the preaching and the hearing of his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder today that you are the Lord of the Sabbath, that you've invited us into something that you have already fulfilled and completed and now offer to us a satisfaction that we could never earn on our own, but a satisfaction that comes from being satisfied in the work you have done. Everything that you have done, you have done completely. And so as you laid down your life as a ransom for many, it was a propitiation, perfect to satisfy the full payment for the penalty of the sins of all who would believe. I pray that today would be a day where we rejoice in that. Help us even now to recalibrate our thinking about rest. Help us to see that in those times where we are able to cease from labor, that we would see it not as idleness, but as an act of worship, where we are reminded that all that ultimately needs to be done has been done, and that everything we do in this life is meant to bring you glory, so that we would trust in your sovereign and providential outworking of our lives, whether we think they're productive enough or not, and that our greatest joy would be in the reminder that because of everything that you have done for us in Christ, we need not do anything to earn our salvation. And we don't need to do anything to keep it. But that you will preserve us and that you will manifest in us the sort of hearts of trust and obedience that reveal the ongoing work of the Spirit in your children. May that be what grants great comfort to everyone here today. In your name we pray. Amen.